Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the mini break. Your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, January 16th. Day one of the 2023 Australian Open is officially in the books. What an extraordinary day of tennis to kick off the year's first slam. In fact, I imagine many of you listeners woke up feeling the same way I did. Dare I say, we feel hungover. After watching so much action unfold over the course of the past 24 hours, in that spirit, I do want to apologize to all of you listeners for the tardiness in the arrival of this episode. It will be my goal throughout the course of this Australian Open to post these recap shows no later than 2 p.m. Eastern time. Unfortunately, I was too easily tempted in following all of last night's action, stayed up far later than I should have. I actually dozed off around 2 a.m. only to be woken up by the roars on Rinky Hijikata's court as he had forced a fifth set against Yannick Hanifman. At that point, I felt committed to watching the remainder of that match, and I'm very grateful that I did as it was extraordinary tennis, extraordinary energy, everything that this sport can be at its best. But at that point, I was also exhausted. Had to go back to sleep. I wake up. I look at my phone. Of course, it's noon Eastern time, and we're off to a late start here on day number one, trying to recap all of the action. That said, again, the goal will be to have these shows up no later than 2 p.m. Eastern time moving forward. I also want to play around with the format of these recap shows. Of course, we've offered daily recaps I would say the last three, four years of slam events. That's the blessing of having this mini break podcast feed is the opportunity to do exactly that. And typically I like to run through the upsets, run through the most notable matches, talk about what goes the distance, list the other results. I'm still going to do all of those things, but I want to offer a little organization at the start of the show. I want to hand out some awards, particularly in week number one, when there are so many different matches to follow. So So what I'll be doing over the course of at least the next six days is talking about the best performances to start each and every show. Who are the players that truly stood out on every day of play? I also want to talk about the biggest surprises. Certainly there will be upsets featured in there, maybe unseeded players finding more success than expected against their fellow unseeded players, maybe lesser seeds earning a significant result in that category. Speaking of significance, what were the results that carried the most gravitas that maybe you did notice, maybe you didn't either. And then, of course, I do want to offer what were the best watches. If you're going to go watch the replays and shout out to the Australian Open YouTube channel, which is offering not just three-minute videos on every match, but extended highlights on just about every match as well. What should you spend your time watching if you are someone who enjoys taking the time to do exactly that? I'll get into the other results on the day. I will try my best to name every result. I may not spend more than 30 seconds on that match, but I'll do my best to try to talk about everything. And then briefly at the end, I'll offer some previews, some thoughts, the top 10 matches on each day's schedule for the men and women. Of course, if you're looking for extensive preview thoughts, if you're looking for picks each and every day, you're into that sort of thing, head on over to our Great Shot podcast feed where we will have a GSP Ace of the Day segment for you listeners each and every day of this event. With that said, 64 singles matches to recap as we look back on day number one of the Australian Open. The last thing we do before we get into them is offer a thanks to our dear friends at Tennis Point who support this show each and every day and support tennis players everywhere by providing, excuse me, the best equipment at the best prices. You know the deal. 
go there today. You'll find everything you're looking for. Use our promo code CR15 when you make a purchase. Not only will it let them know we sent you there, you'll get 15% off all sale items. Free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, let's talk about the best performances on day one of the 2023 Australian Open. Let's start on the women's side. And I do feel like prefacing once again early on in this event, it will be less breaking down of specific matches and more big picture look at what's unfolded in each and every day. You look at the best performances, you probably have to start with the first performance. Jessica Pagula was on and off the court so quickly in her 6-love, 6-1 victory over Jacqueline Christian that you had to take notice right away, particularly given how much momentum Pagula had built during her United Cup run to start the season. Yes, she lost her first match to Petra Kvitova, but after that, Jessica Pagula obviously able to earn the 2-2 two and two victory over Iga Sviantek, who would just tormented her throughout the course of the 2022 season. She also beats a very much informed Martina Trevisan. Good, you know, solid straight set wins over Siegmund and Dart, whom she should be beating. Look, again, Jessica Pagula over the past two and a half years really has made a living over beating whom she's supposed to beat. You look for her, she's 21 and, uh, excuse me, 20 and five going into this Australian Open in her last 52 weeks against players ranked outside the top 50. She was 22 and four against them in 2021. You look for her in her first match that continued here in Melbourne as she earns again a six love, six one victory. She faces three break points, saves all of them, makes two thirds of her first serves, wins 83% of those first serve points. I mean, she was dominant. And then the return of serve was what was so impressive. She was seeing the ball like an absolute watermelon and just pummeling returns down the line with pace, cross court with depth and pace, which is really, really difficult to do unless you time the ball perfectly, particularly on the deuce side with an inside out backhand, which is never a comfortable shot to hit. And yet she is just so comfortable hitting that ball. I mean, again, I was immensely immensely impressed by what Jessica Pagula was able to accomplish yesterday. And look, Pagula is the number three seed. For her to win a first-round match in straight sets shouldn't be that surprising. For her to win it in 59 minutes is what puts her on this list because I do think when you look for Jessica Pagula now, you know, Marta Kostyuk knocked out the seed in her section of the draw. Amanda Nisimova, the quarterfinal matchup for her would be a potential quarterfinal, uh, I believe, against, um, who would she face? Maria Sakari. I mean, to call Pagula a contender for this crown was a given entering the event. But to watch her hit Jacqueline Christian, who hits a big ball, who has some weapons, who does some things that should allow her to hold serve more frequently than she did, to see her just eviscerate Christian, I mean, that's what we saw Iga do throughout the portions of her best parts of last season during her 37-match win streak, where if you didn't have a way of consistently putting pressure on Pagula, and Christian has weapons from the ground, but the serve, I suppose, is a bit of a liability. And boy, did Pagula make it look that much more like one throughout the course of her 0-1 victory. And so again, any doubts you had about Pagula? Yes, she beat Iga 2-2 two two in Sydney, but Iga had to fly over from the previous United Cup site, had very little rest. They had all played so many matches that week. Again, any uh, uh, sure, you can still have all those questions about Pagula against comp- top competition, but to see her, again, eviscerate, just eviscerate Jacqueline Christian, who, again, I will point out, I think has some weapons. That was absolutely phenomenal. Pagula into the second round. She's absolutely one of your top women's performers on the day. I also think, again, there are a couple of candidates you can choose from for this list. Pagula was the unequivocal number one because she went in 59 minutes and dropped just one game. But three other players I have nominated for this category. Jung Chin Wen who I don't have much to say about her first-round victory over Del Magalfi other than to say one was playing checkers, the other was playing chess. Chin Wen, an 0-2 victory. She won the first nine games of this match in about 40 minutes of play. You know, again, was absolutely phenomenal in a 56-minute victory over a golfie who 
moves pretty well, like is pretty solid all around, and yet just could not hang with the pace that Chin Wen brought point in, point out. Again, Jun Chin Wen was on everyone's list as a dark horse candidate to win. Of course, we didn't consider her a dark horse candidate. We considered her a straight-up candidate here at Cracked Rackets because we know better about the 20-year-old from China, how she was the only player to get a set on Iga at Roland Garros, how after qualifying for her first slam and winning a match at the Australian Open last year, she won a match at every slam, at least one, throughout the course of the 2022 season. She's the 29th seed for a reason, but to see her blitz through the competition the way that she did. Again, it's one of those things, the draw takes notice. I think Pagula, you now put her as a tier one contender, probably right up there with Iga with how well she's playing right now. Still below Iga, but up into tier one. She has elevated herself with how well she has played through these first two weeks. And Chin Wen will no longer be a dark horse candidate to the frequent followers of tennis, in my opinion. She's just straight up on the list because the weapon she has on the right days, you know, she's already a top 10 returner, uh, a top 10 server, excuse me. Yes, the forehand backswing can be a little bit big on the return, but her ability to step into the backhand, the fact that she moves as well as she does with how much power she possesses, the ceiling is immensely high for 20-year-old Jung Chin Wen, and I expect the 29th seed will make this Australian Open a bit of a coming-out party for herself, at least in terms of mainstream awareness of her upside even here in 2023. The other two candidates I would throw in, these, in this category, the two candidates who pulled off the upsets on paper, though again, if you've been following the first two weeks of the tour, if you're a frequent mini-break listener, you will not be surprised by the fact that Marta Kostyuk earned a 6-3-6-4 victory over Amanda Anisimova, nor by the fact that Bianca Andreescu earned a 6-2-6-4 win over 25th seeded Marie Bozhkova. Let's start with Kostyuk, who in my opinion, had the tougher of the two victories and thus is probably a better candidate for this mat, uh, for this category. And the reason I say the tougher of the two victories is Anisimova played really good tennis down the home stretch of this match. You look for Marta Kostyuk, a 6-3, 6-4 win in an hour, 18 minutes. The match was only that quick because of how quickly Anisimova plays. I, I think Anisimova's pace of play, she's looking to hit the winner as frequently as possible. And, you know, shout out to our friends at the Australian Open website who are providing advanced stats for this match, you know, less than a quarter of the points in this match went over the five-shot threshold. There were a lot of first-strike tennis played. And, you know, the biggest problem with this match was Nisimova didn't show up until she was down three love. You know, Kostyuk races out to a quick lead. She's jumping on top of the ball. She's striking the ball brilliantly. Kostyuk, for someone who possesses so much power, moves extraordinarily well. I've said this before. I'll say it again. And it's interesting because we're about to talk about Andrescu, but I think Kostyuk and Andrescu are that similar tier of elite athlete where they they can generate elite power without sacrificing a single step of quickness. And that fluidity they possess as well, the creativity, the feel, they're just the all-around on paper they can do the, a little bit of everything athletes, which is why I will always believe in each of their upsides, particularly as neither of them have crossed the 25-year-old threshold. Um, Kostyuk came out playing the sort of elite tennis she played in the first week on her way to the semifinals in Adelaide. Again, was striking the ball brilliantly. You look for Kostyuk in set number one of this match. She made 72% of her first serves, was 18 of 21 on those first serve points, five aces against just one double fault, and hit 13 winners against just nine unforced errors, was clearly the aggressor. Five of five at the net. Anisimova doesn't win a point at the net in set number one. Only four winners off of Anisimova's rackets because she didn't have the opportunity to hit hit them outside of when she landed the first serve. But again, she was down 3-0 before she was even able to get into her own playbook. And so credit to Kostyuk for jumping on Anisimova at the start. She also goes up a quick break, one love in set number two. But then Anisimova woke up and Anisimova was driving the ball brilliantly. I mean, anytime she had Kostyuk on the stretch and credit to Kostyuk who forced Anisimova to have to hit two, three additional balls per rally, which ultimately added up. But Anisimova hit 17 winners in set number two to Kostyuk 16, 12 on four series to Kostyuk seven. But Anisimova started playing much more on her terms, started dictating uh, the course of play. And this match was decided in two games. Anisimova led 2-1. Kostyuk was serving. 
Anisimova had, I think, four or five breakpoint chances. Kostyuk, it's a game that ultimately goes to seven deuces where Kostyuk's able to hold, and she holds for two all. And then Anisimova plays a long deuce game on her serve in that fifth service uh, in that fifth game of the set. And Kostyuk breaks and is able to, you know, by the way, Kostyuk saves a break point in her 1-2 two, two service game with this ridiculous inside-out scoop backhand drop volley, which every coach will tell you that's exactly how you don't want a player to hit it. And yet Kostyuk pulled it off, which is a testament to her feel, her athleticism, her ability to absorb the pace of what was a very well-struck passing shot from Anisimova right at the body. Um Kasia could just do more things. She could stretch Anisimova, uh, again, defensively, and then she also had the ability to play elite first-strike tennis. And you look overall in the match, Marta Kostyuk wins 74% of her first serve points, makes 63% of them, eight aces against five double faults, but she had to be a bit more aggressive on the second serve in the second set because Anisimova was striking the return so perfectly and aggressively like she does when she plays her best. 29 winners against 16 unforced errors for Kostyuk. 21-18 ratio for Anisimova. Kostyuk 11 of 11 at the net. That might be a little generous. Kostyuk played a top 25 level match. She was that good. And Anisimova, who again, didn't wake up. She was down 3-0 in about seven minutes. But when she woke up, she started to play much better tennis. And you could just tell Anisimova was struggling mentally, physically. She just wasn't herself out there. And yet... The sheer power she brings on the court, the sheer ability to just play on her terms and have those non-negotiable weapons kept her competitive against a Kostyuk who I did think was locked in from the start, who I did think played some of her best tennis. And so it's a disappointing exit for Anisimova, a disappointing first month for Anisimova, who did get a win but uh, in Adelaide too, but again, just didn't seem quite right here in the month of January. Something to keep an eye on, certainly, given just how much she struggled and and very understandably with injuries and you know she lost her father a couple of years ago as well who was such an instrumental part of her tennis game you could just tell something wasn't quite right for Amanda Nisimova and more most importantly you just hope things are right for her moving forward because Anisimova who I believe is like six months older than my younger brother yeah she's 21 years old there's a long future for Amanda Nisimova 2023 is not the end-all be-all. You know, she could still be competing in 2033 if things break right in her career. And so just we hope everything's all right with Amanda Nisimova. But the real story is, and again, one of the best performances, one of your biggest winners of the day certainly has to be Marta Kostyuk, who advances, uh, again, 6-3-6-4 win over 28th-seeded Amanda Nisimova. The other upset of the day on the women's side, and again, welcome to the mini break, folks. We're going to drain on. I, I said I'll try not to break down too many matches individually as granular as I did there, but these were the, dare I say, ostensible upsets of the day. Andrescu, uh, two and four win over 25th seed Marie Boshkova. Look, if Andrescu's going to play this aggressively, she can win this damn tournament. Andrescu wins eight more points in the zero to four shot rallies than Boshkova. She also outdoes her in the five plus shot rallies by eight total points. She was just better all around than Boshkova, uh, a player who pushes you physically, who's very much a litmus test sort of player into getting into the top 35. And look, Boshkova had answers, especially in set number uh, two, when she just placed her first serve, worried more about the placement than the than the pace, and set up the rally by forcing Andrescu to be on the move behind uh, the Boshkova first strike. And yet, I thought BB played well. I thought she was particularly aggressive behind her serve. And you look for Andrescu in this match. She uh, faced three break points, but when unbroken in nine total service games against someone who's a top 15 returner on the WTA Tour, she played really aggressive first strike tennis. Uh, you look for Andrescu, 23 winners against just 14 unforced errors. She went 15 of 18 on net points in this match. She was dominant behind her first serve. She was able to play that elite first strike tennis that her combination of power, creativity, and and athleticism allows her to play. And then, again, early on when Boshkova was hanging second serves in that first set, Andrescu attacked them 
easily. The depth she was generating on her return of serve oftentimes didn't allow Bojkova to have a clean look at a first strike and already reset the point to neutral. And again, Bojkova doesn't have the biggest serve, but she does place the ball extraordinarily well. And yet Andreski was able to take that away from her on the return of serve and is able to get the clutch break up 5-4 at the end of that second set. Look again, we know for Bianca Andreescu, inconsistency, still good tennis, but inconsistency has been the story of the past year. You look over her last 52 weeks, and we've done this segment too many times on the mini break, but 22 and 14 overall. Her loss to Victoria Golubic at the Billie Jean King Cup is really the only bad loss on her resume over the course of the past year. She's played a lot of good matches, played a lot of really good players, extraordinarily close. You know, three set loss to Garcia, straight sets to Garcia at the U.S. Open, three sets to Junction when in Toronto, straight uh, straight sets, but four and six to Rabakina at Wimbledon, who ultimately went on to win the damn thing. Andreescu's been very close to being back to earning that breakthrough win where we'll all say, oh, that's the, the 22-year-old Bianca Andreescu who was the 2019 U.S. Open champion. She's still just 22 years old. That's what I would remind everyone. And the fact that she was healthy for eight months last season, was able to rack up 35-plus matches, that's the key thing. And you looked for Andrescu. She just looked healthy, in rhythm, in form. She was intense. This match was delightful. Andrescu has to be one of your biggest winners on the day as she advances to round number two. And up next for Bianca Andrescu, you know, it's funny because she knocks out the seed, right, in her section in 25th seeded uh, Marie Boshkova. But up next for Bianca Andrescu, she'll take on Christina Buxa. Of course, ultimately now all of us hopefully circling a potential third round date with Iga Sviantek. That, uh, I would say, and by the way, for Kostyuk, for what it's worth, she beats Anisimova. Next, she gets Gadecki. For her, it would be a potential third round with Jessica Pagula. So they're going to need their best tennis, each of those players bringing their best, though, here on day number one. Those are your top performers on the women's side. On the men's side, I don't think it was as clear-cut, and so my list is a little bit more exhaustive as such. I'm going to spend a little bit less time perhaps breaking down each of these winners on the men's side, but you got to start with Daniil Medvedev, right? The number seven seed, which is a crazy thing to say out loud considering he's a former U.S. Open champion, last year's Australian Open finalist, and was number one in the world at one point last season, but Daniil Medvedev drops just three games, 6-0, 6-1, 6-2 over Marcos Giron. That's a little reminder to the rest of the field of, hey, on hard courts, in the best of five set format, I'm the guy that all this runs through. And obviously for Medvedev, the date we all have circled would be a potential fourth round matchup for him. uh, Excuse me, not a fourth round matchup, a potential quarterfinal matchup for him against Rafael Nadal. But, you know, just a reminder for Daniil Medvedev in the round of 128 at Grand Slams. He has been rock solid over the course. You know, he hasn't lost the first round match at a slam since 2020 Roland Garros, uh, which of course came one month or like two weeks after the U.S. Open had ended. He's 17 and six in his career in round of 128 matches at Grand Slams. You look for him on hard courts, 11 and two. He hasn't lost a first round match at a slam since the 2017 U.S. Open, where he lost a first round match to a qualifier teenager by the name of Denis Shapovalov. Medvedev's the guy. Like He's a tier one contender at these hardcourt slams. He's not the guy. Novak Djokovic is the guy in Australia. Obviously, there are other tier one contenders on the men's side, but 0-1-2 for Daniil Medvedev on a day where you look for Medvedev. He was flawless on serve throughout the course of this match. Medvedev winning 78.4% of his first serve points, making 70% of his first serves, double-digit aces, and saved all six break points that he faced in hour 36 for a three out of five set match. That's dominance. And if that's the level we're getting from Medvedev, again, that Nadal quarterfinal or whomever it would be in the quarterfinal, you feel like Medvedev will be the favorite regardless of the other player's form. With that said, he would be my first winner of the day on the men's side. Other good performances, certainly you point to the two upsets we saw. Yuri Lechechka, 6-3, 6-3, 6-3 over Borna Cioric. Look, the Lechechka weapons are just real. Like, we saw it certainly most pronounced at the end of last season at the next-gen finals. But, you know, you look for the 21-year-old from the Czech Republic. His serve, his forehand, 
when he lands his first serve, he's able to hit his first forehand with his feet set. It's a top 50 weapon. It just affords him opportunities to win free points, and that's exactly what he did repeatedly against George yesterday. You look for Lechechka, who overall able to win 80% of his first serve points, fight off uh, six of the seven break points that he faces in the match. It was a really clean performance for Yuri Lechechka, who was remarkable uh, from the ground, hitting a, a grand total of 35 winners to Chorch's 12. Now, he hit 28 unforced errors, but Chorch hit 29. Again, 35 winners to Chorch's 12. Lachechka moved well. He's in the backhand with much more fluidity out of the corners. He's just a little more flexible, a little less rigid. There are less drives that go out, more, again, angle and craft to that backhand pass. And again, when he has an opportunity to set his feet with his forehand, he'll move forward behind it where he was very effective, 16 of 21 overall in the match. He was a lot better than George. And I'm mad because I saw that on paper and I said to myself, pick Lechechka. I haven't seen much of Borna. Yeah, he played a three-set match against Tsitsipas at United Cup, but it's really all I've seen of him. And I really liked what I saw from Lechechka at United Cup. That said, I was a bit gun-shy, understandably so. I won't be about Lechechka moving forward. Who, again, next-gen finals, next finals finalist last year. Kid has weapons. You don't get there and you don't have that sort of result without having some sort of significant skill set. And again, on a day where next-gen finals champion Brandon Nakashima lost in five sets, a match that we'll get to a little bit later on, uh, it certainly is nice to see the next-gen finals bounce live on through Yuri Lechechka, certainly one of your top performers on the men's side and I believe up to number 70 in the live rankings with his win. The other nominees I have, and again, I'm going to go through some of them pretty quickly here. Uh, Yasuki Watanuki. I mean, oh my God. This guy has been on fire, the 24-year-old from Japan, over the course of the past five months on the Challenger Tour. And to beat Arthur Rinderknecht 3-3-2, I don't care if Rinderknecht didn't play his best match. Watanuki won 3-3-2 against a top 60 player. He's up to number 114 in the live rankings. It's a career high for the 24-year-old. He's in strike zone. It's it's not if, it's when he's going to make a top 100 debut. And again, 3-3-2, three, three, and two, the weapons are real. The physicality is real. There's no discernible, obvious weakness in his game. The serve's a little attackable, but so is everyone's uh, at times. Boy, was that impressive. He had to get a shout-out here. Also, I have to give a shout-out to uh, Siv- Sivrakina, I believe was how it was pronounced, uh, the uh, 20-year-old from the Czech Republic who earns a very impressive win in straight sets. Delibor Sivrakina uh, up to number 179 in the live rankings with his straight set win over Munar Sivrakina, a 3-2-2 two, two win. I mean, Munar was not good. And I'm not that impressed by Sivrakina's game, although it is his first win in the slam, so shout out to him. I didn't see that many weapons. He's got great feel. Loved his backhand drop shot. Don't love when that's the first place I'm starting with a player to complement their skill set. I mean, again, he moves well, defends well. Forehand backswing's a little bit weird, but he gets outside the ball well. I'm not sure what's elite in his game, but to beat someone 3-2-2 and earn your first major victory in that fashion over a guy in Munar who's typically a really tough physical out, that's just impressive. So he gets a shout-out on this list. 17-year-old Jerry Shang gets a shout-out on this list. I joke about Shang being not eliminated from the greatest of all time conversation yet, just given how much challenger success he's already had at the age of 17. And now we see him get his first slam win, four sets over Oscar Ota. Oh my God, is Shang's contact point brilliant? And he kind of plays with like a semi-Eastern grip on his forehand wing, but he explodes. When he makes contact with the ball, he just explodes through the court. The ground strokes do with such pace, such depth. The forehand's explosive. His jumping backhand down the line to win the match epitomizes what he's capable of as a shot maker. He's a little stiff as a mover, but he took care of the little things really well against Oscar Ota. Protected his serve. I believe he went unbroken and, again, focused on his first return. Getting that ball low, forcing Ota into a difficult first strike, difficult first shot, if not just an outright return winner. Shing was properly aggressive on his return. He gets his first slam win. You look for the seven. 17-year-old now. He's up to number 162 in the live ranking. 17 years old, 162. Could he make a top 100 debut this year? Absolutely possible. This puts him on the right sort of start. Again, some quicker ones. Nishioka, 
straight set went over Michael Emer to win that match in straights. It's good to see he's healthy after he was forced to withdraw a second set against Corda, week one of Adelaide, to beat Emer in straight sets, in particular on a hard court. That's really impressive and indicative. Yoshi really is the top 50 guy we see him as right now. Sinner looked healthy. That's big. That's why it's the best performance because he crushed Kyle Edmund. Not that that was ever in doubt. CT Paz, straight sets over Quinton Halise. CT Paz sometimes struggles early in slams. Oh, man, where the servant forehand locked in. And to see him fight back from being a breakdown in that third set, good to see him overcome some adversity as well. And then shout-out to our guy, Chris Eubanks, the former Georgia Tech All-American, into the top 100 of the live rankings for the first time. Eubanks sitting at number 100 is the 26-year-old after his five-set victory over Sunwoo Kwan. Now, I never ended up recording the podcast Oh my God, was Quan good in Adelaide too. His forehand was just a revelation. And unfortunately, I think his legs died a little bit at the end of the match. Just didn't quite have the juice left in the in the fifth set. And, you know, having to track down the countless big serves, big forehands of Chris Eubanks, that'll drain your legs. And so, again, Quan did a great job staying aggressive, staying alive throughout the course of that match when I thought Eubanks was striking the ball particularly well uh, in that Melbourne Heat. Crowd was trying to will Quan into a comeback, but credit to Chris Eubanks who stayed the court, who swung through his backhand very aggressively. That's clearly been the progress that he's made. He's also more comfortable taking it off speed. Just, again, he's looking good. He's moving well. He's hitting the serve forehand with such confidence. He's into the top 100, even if momentarily for the first time in his career. So credit to Chris Eubanks, who you just got to include on this list whenever you make a top 100 debut via a win in the first round of a slam. That said, those are my nominees for best performances on the men's side. And again, I, I know I didn't throw, I guess, well, I'll leave this in. No rewind sound effect necessary. Super producer Daniel Westoff, who, as you notice, is back. Um, Yuri Lehe- uh, excuse me, Yuri Lehechka upset George. We also had another upset. Lloyd Harris certainly needs to be a nominee in the men's best performance. You know what, Westoff? Give me a rewind sound effect in that mind set. Again, we're, I'm gonna, that was bad English, too, so I'm glad he threw in the rewind sound effect. But your final winner uh, of day number one on the men's side has to be Lloyd Harris, who flies from a continent over. He was in Asia, in Thailand, loses a final of a challenger on Saturday, has 48 hours to prepare, f- take a seven-hour flight as well in that 48-hour time span to get to Australia, get ready for this first-round match against Lorenzo Musetti, and it's Harris who takes the match 7-6 in the fifth. And by the way, I forgot 7-6 in the fifth matches, 7-6 in the third for the women is decided by a 10-point super breaker. Oh, I love that. It's I love the Super Breaker. I haven't grown up playing them myself. And so, again, the big serving Harris, who's been a top 40 guy in the world, wasn't healthy for much of last year, makes a challenger final, obviously, uh, to start the season. And now uh, to get this five-set win over a Musetti, looked healthier. But the big serving, the weapons of Harris into that Musetti forehand on this surface, just still just able to overwhelm him. But again, talk about the life of a tennis player. What should be focused on Netflix's Breakpoint series? Harris plays a challenger final, loses it. Flies seven hours, beats the 17th seed at the Australian Open 48 hours later. I mean, if that's not a best performance nominee, I don't know what is. So those are your best performances on the men's side on day number one. Now, I want to talk about the surprises on the day. And again, we already talked about the upsets. Andrescu Kostyuk on the women's side. Harris Lechechka on the men's. Talk about a testament to things returning to normalcy. Uh, things returning to normal normalcy returning. Shout out to words that mean the same thing. Um I just think the fact that the rankings are now more accurate. We That's why U.S. Open last year, remember the bottom half of the men's draw featured no first-round upsets. There were two here on day number one of the Australian Open for the men and the women. The seating is just more accurate. The rankings are more accurate. People are traveling and playing fuller schedules, and thus, even if there's still minor discrepancies, particularly relating to Wimbledon, things look more accurate. And the seating now reflects that fact. But that doesn't mean there weren't surprises on day number one of this Australian Open. A couple I would point to on the women's side in particular. I thought Ju Lin was going to get knocked out by the big weapons of Rebecca Marino. And you look for Rebecca Marino, who certainly had a strong ending 
to her 2022 season. Marino, who is never going to be a top 50 player, but had worked her way back at this point of her career, but at 32 years old, worked her way back inside the top 100 semifinalist in Tampico, quarterfinals in Chennai, third round U.S. Open. I just thought her weapons were going to overwhelm Ju Lin, but they did not. Credit to Ju Lin, who has had a really strong start uh, to this season. The 28-year-old back up to number 73 in the rankings via a straight set win over Marino. Again, not the biggest surprise, but I didn't think Kostyuk or Andreescu winning was that big of a surprise either. So I thought those two certainly had, uh, I thought uh, then under that circumstance, Julin qualifies on the list. And then how about the fact that Ostapenko versus Yastrzemska didn't go three sets, didn't feature some wacky tiebreaker. No, it was Ostapenko, a foreign to win over Yastrzemska. They hugged after the match as well. That was unexpected. Um, yeah, Ostapenko looked consistent, which she did not in the warm-up weeks leading up to this Australian Open, which, again, two weeks of Ostapenko, you can always just throw out the window. You never know which Ostapenko is going to show up week in, week out. But I suppose the surprise to me, particularly, again, in a match where things could have gotten volatile, given you have two shot makers who don't exactly provide a ton of rhythm to their opponents. It really never did. wasn't the prettiest tennis, but pretty straightforward victory for Yelena Ostapenko to advance to round number two. So, so those are your biggest surprises on the women's side. On the men's side, I mentioned the Watanuki surprise. I mean, come on, three two and two over three three and two over Rinder Kranesh. Uh Sivrakina, uh, straight sets over Munar. Sarundalo, straight sets over anyone of late, but to beat Paya four four and three. I mean, again, he was the favorite in that match, but Again, good to see the Argentinian uh, getting a big, uh, you know, again, it's low-hanging fruit on his resume to get a first-round win at the Australian Open, sustain his top 30 ranking, let alone a top 40 ranking, which is really where he wants to be to start the clay court season because now he's getting into the main draws for sure on his best surface of the biggest events, right? Barcelona, Madrid, and, you know, uh, there are countless others in Monte Carlo, etc. It's just, you know, for Sarandolo, that's the key is being inside the top 50. Obviously, he's going to have a huge chunk of Miami points coming off of his resume soon, so he's got to make up some ground here now. Uh, It's a really nice first-round win and a good start for him to this 2023 season. I thought that was a surprise. Nishioka again, straight sets over Emer, Eubanks. I thought that was surprising as well on the men's side. But again, the upsets, we hadn't seen a ton of Chorich. What we had seen of Lachetchka of late was certainly top 50 caliber, so I don't think that was shocking. Musetti coming off of the injury at Laver Cup. Yes, he was better on hard courts to end the last season, but hard courts have still never been his best surface. Harris Healthy has been a guy who's made a second week at a hard court slam before. I don't think there were too many huge shocks on uh, day number one of the Australian Open. Again, only two up, uh, only two seeds knocked out. Like I know Keys, Collins were each pushed to three sets. Was that that surprising? No. Mulchen beating Wawrinka in five, not shocking. Maki Nakashima going five. Milman beating Hussler in front of a home crowd. Mute Wu going five. Like, none of these things were that shocking in my mind. I thought it was a pretty straightforward day one of the year's first major. That said, certainly some significant results I want to touch on here now, and we'll start on the women's side. How about Karolina Mukova? 6261 over Lucia Serenko Mukova, a former semifinalist at the Australian Open. Now she lost early in the one warm-up event she played. I believe it was a second round exit for her, but Mukova looked healthy. She struck the ball extraordinarily well. Again, she dropped three games in about an hour-long first round of match. I want no part of Karolina Mukova if I'm any of the top seeds in this draw. And Mukova, by the way, next up has 13th seeded Danielle Collins, who uh, I, I want to touch. Uh, I'll touch on a little bit more later because, again, I'll get to her when I talk. Well, I guess this is one of the most significant results. Collins' knee was bandaged up. Like, she was braced up. You could tell she was not healthy in her uh, three-set victory over Anna Kalinskaya. And look, it should have been straight sets. And I'm not just saying that because I took her minus three and a half games on my GSP Ace of the Day segment. I'm saying that because she had multiple breakpoint chances in the second set of the match. It felt like she was in control throughout much of that second set. And just, again, credit to Kalinskaya, who's not great at anything. But she's really good at everything. Not really good. She's good at everything. She moves well, absorbs pace well, redirects pace well, 
fluid off of the forehand, backhand wing. Not the biggest serve, but a solid serve. She absorbed the first blow that Collins threw at her. She was able to uh, absorb that first strike, hit the ball where Collins was not, which I know sounds simple, but you got to keep Collins on the move because when Collins' feet are set, you're just in trouble with how big she hits the ball from the baseline. Kalinskaya forced Collins out of the center of the court, which is the biggest compliment I can offer. She had the athleticism to pull that game plan off, and yet, again, the weapons of Collins ultimately overwhelmed Kalinskaya in the end, who was dealing with some health issues clearly by that third set. Collins able to survive. You know, Madison Keys, 10th seed, three-set win over Blinkova. She's able to survive, and I thought Keys played, you know, Keys went down a quick, I think, either 2-0 or 3-0. I think she went down 2-0 before she kind of raced ahead and woke up in that first set. I actually think she went down 3-0. Um, and then she was striking the ball brilliantly, just swinging so freely. But credit to Blinkova, who got a little more aggressive in set number two. Now, Blinkova moves pretty well. She absorbs pace really well. She generates pretty solid depth on every ground stroke that she hits. That said, she's at her best when she is trying to go Mach 12, even if the errors begin to pile up. She just has real pace that I think if she channels more frequently, it's just going to be a pain in the derriere for opponents to deal with. But Keyes' pace overwhelmed her in the end. And credit to Madison Keyes, who found her rhythm, who maintained her intensity really well from start to finish. There was no lull in this match from Keyes. 6-4-3-6-6-2. Keyes able to take the match in three sets. I think she looked pretty... I think that was a good first-round test, considering Blinkova coming off of a semifinal last week in Hobart. Had a little momentum on her side, certainly. She started to play her be- some better tennis of late. Has the 24-year-old from Russia. And Keyes able to get through that match in three sets. The sort of match we've seen keys tripped up on so frequently over the course of the past three years it feels like when she can get through that first round tough slug then she finds her footing and then no one in the draw wants to face her but those would be my most significant women's results on the men's side i mean again there are i'll get to all the other results by the way on the women's side as well don't worry we will touch on everything including iga's straight set went over nehemiah i know i haven't talked about that yet certainly on the men's side you start with rafa right and you look for rafa who ultimately earns a seven five two six six four six one victory over jack draper I thought Rafa played particularly aggressive tennis against Draper in this opening round three-hour, 41-minute match. And it's interesting because Draper ultimately ends the match cramping, right, and wasn't able to move throughout the majority of the fourth set. And if you're going to rewatch this match, really only rewatch the first three because the level of tennis, particularly throughout set number one, was quite high. I thought Rafa was really aggressive throughout the course of this match. And you look for Rafa, 41 winners against 46 unforced errors. He and Draper actually each end the match with 46 unforced errors. But you wonder for Rafa, how much higher would that count have been had Draper been fully fit? Which again, that's not Rafa's fault that he wasn't, but he wasn't in set number four. It felt like Rafa didn't have any patience to play the eight. 10 plus shot rallies in this match. He, anytime you got to look at a ball inside or on top of the service line, he pulled the trigger, changed direction, looked to move forward. You look for Rafa in this match, 20 of 24 overall at the net. It, it just, again, it felt like Rafa physically. I mean, again, he's not the same guy he was a decade ago. How could he be? It's been a decade of wear and tear as one of the top two players consistently in the world. And yet what was so fascinating, and I mentioned this early in his United Cup matches against Nori, against Demonauer, it felt like, a, I mean, ultimately Draper cramps, so I suppose there is some hypocrite, uh, this is a bit of a hypocritical statement, but Draper was able to match his fit, Rafa's physicality in the first three sets, and ultimately it broke Draper in set four, so I suppose that means he wasn't able to sustain it for the long haul. But Draper's also just turned 21 years old, and yes, he has the talent, he has the game of a top 25 player, but he's not there yet, physically, and I think other guys like Nori, like Demon, the list goes on and on, I think they are there now, and that's, uh, and you know, again, what does Rafa do to compensate for that fact? He plays a little bit more aggressively, I mean, he's always been so precise, he's always been aggressive, and relentless in his patterns, but it just feels like he, he was willing to pull the trigger earlier in the rally, particularly, again, set number one when he's holding with ease and he breaks Draper at 5-6. Obviously, Draper, terrible drop shot choice on that set point, but that's 
a mental mistake that happens when you're playing the world number one in Rafael Nadal, you know, set number uh, three. Nadal gets an early break, not an early break, but gets the break, holds on to it. I, I thought it was, again, tactically a very smart match from Rafa, who played with pace, with heavy topspin, through the Jack Draper forehand, which is precisely what you have to do because that backswing and the grip are a little bit extreme for Draper on that wing. But man, like, again, I don't know. Something was a little different about Rafa in this first-round match, so I want to keep an eye on him moving forward because I noticed it. I wonder if some of you listeners did as well. At A.L. Gruskin, of course, let me know one way or another. I thought it was big to see Felix and Chapo, the two Canadians who we know they're upside, but both of them have struggled occasionally in the past in weird first-round exits. You know, F.A. last year lost to Cressy first round, lost to... Was it Draper first round of the U.S. Open? I think I got this match wrong before. No. Who lost to Draper first round? I think it was FAA. Um, no, it wasn't FAA because Draper played Hatchinov round two, which wouldn't have been possible. Anyways, um, you look for Felix, drops the first set 6-1, but a 1-6-7-6-7-6-6-3 over Pospisil for Chapo. Up 6-4, looks like he's cruising against Lajevic. Then the forehand disappears for 20 minutes. Then Chapo, though, ultimately 6-4-4-6-6-4-6-1 win. Both guys found their form as the matches went along. And considering neither guy play United Cup, considering Chapa played first week of Adelaide, but Felix lost first round first week of Adelaide, not a ton of matches for either guy coming into this. They worked their way into form. They found their weapons. They found their fitness. They found ways to win not playing their best tennis, which has so frequently been an issue for each of these guys early in their careers. And that's a big step. Yeah, not a big step, but it's significant. It's why this belongs listed in this category. So figured they belong in the significant victories on the day. Certainly significant in my heart, a couple of five-setters. I already mentioned Eubanks, but Mackey, five sets over Nakashima. Uh, that match was significant in that it almost made me cry. Uh, I'm sad anyone had to lose that match, Mackey. Uh, just, I, I think there was one break of serve for each guy through the first two sets of the match. I think Nakashima only got broken twice throughout the course of the match, and so serve bot Brandon Nakashima continues to persist. Mackey was just a little bit better in the outer thirds, a little bit better on defense, a little bit better to absorb the first strike of Nakashima and find ways to pass him in the breakers. I mean, again, three breakers in this match. Mackey goes 2-1. and one. Ultimately, he's able to win the match. The margins were that thin. This was one of the best watches on the day. Uh, again, significant in my heart. And then, ugh. Try not getting goosebumps watching the third, fourth, and fifth sets of Hijikata Hanifman. And I love Yannick Hanifman. That's my guy, former USC All-American. We've had him on the Cracked Interviews podcast multiple times. Near and dear friend of the show. As is Rinky, former UNC All-American. And to see Rinky get the crowd on his side, create a permission structure for them to get as rowdy as fans can get at any sporting event, to see him embrace that energy, to see the athleticism, to see the passing shots, to see the explosiveness. What a five-set win for the former UNC All-American, who slowly but surely, up to number 144, 21 years old, played two years of college tennis, he's up to 144 in the live rankings. It's a testament to him going to the ITF Tour, winning like 50 matches in 60 total attempts, and building his ranking up to where now he's having success at Challengers, He's getting wild cards, taking advantage of them, winning first-round matches at slams. That's how you establish yourself on the ATP Tour. You take advantage of the chances offered to you. That's precisely what Rinki Hijikata does uh, in on day number one. And speaking of which, again, those were two of my favorite watches of the day. If you're going to go back and rewatch the highlights, Azarenka Kennan was a 4-6 and six win for Azarenka. She, uh, Kennan races out to a three-love set. Azarenka wins five consecutive games, has a couple of set points. Kennan holds, but then Azarenka takes the first 6-4. Fun second set, back and forth, 7-6. Ultimately, Azarenka takes it. It's funny. Kennan, again, goes up 2-0 quick mini break, only to lose, I think, five consecutive points. Kennan's playing top 50 ball again. And her ability to move the ball around with her first strike, the depth and pace. It's not elite power, but it's elite depth an elite pace, which isn't power. Pace and power, in my opinions, are two separate things. It's just the, again, the depth and the earliness with which she takes the ball. She redirects things. Then she mixes in the slice, the drop shot, the lobs, the angles. She's placing her serve with much more confidence and hitting it much more freely. She played really well. 
the problem was Azarenka was the better mover. Azarenka was more fluid. Azarenka was able to match her plus one prowess as well. And again, that was my favorite match to watch on the day. Vika looking very much like a dark horse contender with a straight set win over, again, a rounding into form. Sonia Kennan. Go watch Andrescu Boshkova. Boshkova just makes enough balls in every match she plays that the tennis is inherently intriguing. Anisimova Kostyuk, not the longest points, but very good tennis. Very high-quality shot-making throughout the course of that match. And again, on the men's side, Hichikata Hanifman, McDonald Nakashima, Draper Nadal. Those would be the matches I would turn to, at least the first three sets of Draper Nadal. Let's run through the other results to end our wrap-up of day number one. You look on the women's side, we had uh, six total matches go the distance. Mentioned Keys and Collins already. Bernardo Pera, another American, a three-set win over Uchijama. You also had Bondar, Kozlova, Buxa, each earning three-set wins on the day. In terms of your seeds, look, Iga didn't play great in a 4-5 and five win over Julia Niemeyer and there's no doubt the German who reached second weeks of Wimbledon, U.S. Open last year, played Iga close at the U.S. Open last year. Un- or was it Iga? I forget who it was. But her weapons are real. Like, her ability to take the return early on the rise, her ability to disrupt the rhythm of Iga Svantec. She played the match perfectly from a tactical perspective and had breakpoint chances to take a 4-3 lead in set number one. Was up a break through much of the course of set number two. And then when she needs to, Iga has the ability that all of the greats do to just turn things on, to make it damn near impossible to close her out without playing top five tennis for a 10, 15-minute stretch consecutively. And again, Iga was spraying. The unforced error count was inconsistent at best. You look for Iga, in fact, with just a quick gander at the stats. I know I haven't done a ton of this today, but you look at the winner unforced error count for Iga Svantec in this first-round match. Iga, 20 winners against 28 unforced errors. I said it during the U.S. Open. She had only two sets throughout her entire U.S. Open title run where she finished positive in terms of winner-to-unforced-error ratio. She was a little inconsistent. The forehand was spraying. Part of that is due to the pace Nehemiah plays with, that it just the ball is deep into the body of Sviantek. She needs a little bit more time to set her feet, swing through that forehand. But she redirected well enough on that wing. Whenever she had the opportunity to set her feet, she exploded through the ball, went unbroken in set number one. She does seem to be playing a little bit better from a plus-one perspective. It's a really good win. Uh, in my opinion, for Iga Sviantek, 4-5 and five over again, an informed Nehemiah, particularly given Iga wasn't playing her best. Now, again, up next, a totally different sort of battle in Kami Osorio, in Drescu loom- looming in round number three, a potential date with either a Rabakina or Collins or even a Mukova in round number four, or Kaya Yuvan, who she happens to know particularly well. It's a really tough draw for Iga at this 2023 Australian Open. Tougher than her U.S. Open draw. Tougher than her French Open draw last year. Maybe even tougher than her 2020 French Open draw. This would probably be her toughest pathway to a slam title. And yet it's just that ability to find ways to win. I think that's what makes Iga remain so impressive. The totality of things she can do on the court. Four and five victory for her over the talented Nehemiah. You also had straight set wins from Maria Sakari, Coco Goff, impressive straight set win. One and four over Sinyakova. Sinyakova just didn't play aggressive enough until set number two. And even then, Goff's ability to take the net away from Sinyakova, force her on her back foot. That was a really strong start for the 18-year-old American. Kvitova, six and two win. I mentioned Ostapenko already. You also had straight set wins from Krichikova, Rabak and Jill Teichman. Uh, I mentioned some of the other seeds at other points already, so I'm not going to reiterate them here. In terms of unseeded results, how about Emma Raducanu? She's just better than uh, Tamara Korpatz in every sense of the word. More pace, more depth, better serve, better movement. She's just better, and the results indicate as much. Straight set win for Raducanu to set up a blockbuster second round against Coco Goff. Also, credit to Katie McNally. You know, had a really tough first-round match slated against Paula Bedosa. Bedosa withdraws. It's Laura Pagosi instead. McNally earns a straight set win. That's exactly what you do to solidify yourself in the top 100, which we have said for years now. That's the sort of singles player Katie McNally is with her serve, her forehand, her willingness to move forward, that aggression, that elite first step in power. Uh, your other winners on the day, Osorio, 
Shinyu, Yuvan, straight sets. Again, Sasnovich ends the run of Brenda Fruvertova with a straight set victory. Kalanina, pretty impressive straight sets over Vandaway. She might have snuck in to a best performer conversation had I not decided to prune down my list a little bit. You also had Clara Burel, Nadia Podoroska, Olivia Gedecki. And then how about Diana Schneider? Maybe your last and most significant result I wanted to touch on, the allegedly incoming freshman for the NC State Wolfpack, now into the top 100 with a 6-5 and five win over Kutsova. Oh my God, does the lefty have weapons? An 18 years old, up to number 88 in the world. You're going to make over $100,000 with a second round Australian Open check. I mean, again, I don't know how she goes to college at this point. And you look at the weapons she possesses. She's not the best mover, but lefty hits the slice serve out wide on the ad and then just guns whatever the plus one ball is to the open court so effectively. She scraps well. I love her energy on court. A great fighter. She's pro ready. The question is, does she, is she, uh, she's pro ready physically. The question is, again, mentally, does she want to absorb the taxation, the grind that is a year on tour, or is she ready to just, you know, want to go spend a semester of college to just refine everything and prepare herself that much more? That said, 88 in the world. 88 in the world. I don't know how she goes to college. Uh, So that would be my prediction at this moment. That said, let's move over to the men's results here. Uh, You look, uh, of course, I mentioned Nadal already. Tsitsipas, a comfortable straight set win over Halise. His serve, his forehand were firing. How about Hubie Hercots, who's often had some early round at slam yips. Impressive 6-2-2 win over Pedro Martinez. Nori uh, earning a straight set win. Tiafo four sets over Altmaier. That match got tricky at the end. It's always fun to watch Daniel Altmaier. Strikes the ball beautifully. Aggressive. The one-handed backhand is impressive. He's a good athlete. Tiafo is just a little bit better at all the things. And Altmaier, not quite big enough weapons to consistently put enough pressure on that Tiafo forehand. Your other winners, Hachinov, straight sets, Sarundalo, I already mentioned straight sets, Korda, went away in the second set, but rebounded very quickly, 6-4-1-6-6-3-6-2, went over Christian Garin, he just looks locked in to start this year, and then Botic, Vandesenskop, an impressive four-set win over Ilya Ivashka, your other winners on the day, I haven't mentioned already, Jason Kubler, straight sets, Sebi Baez has now lost 18 of 19, he is ready for the clay court season, he will very much enjoy the South American swing. Uh, Lestien, first career slam win at age 30. That's always impressive. He knocks out Montero in straight sets. Taro Daniel, four set win over Escobedo. Lorenzo Sanego, four sets over Nuno Borges. And then Tomas Martin Echeverry, the four set win over Gregoire Barrer. With that said, that's your look at day one of the 2023 Australian Open. Now, quickly to wrap today's show, let's get into my 10 favorite matches of day number two. We'll start on the women's side. And again, I'm going to rapid fire through these quickly. If you're looking for a more extensive preview, head on over to our Great Shot podcast, Ace of the Day feed. But over on the women's side, Burton's Muguruza, come on. It, it might be a disaster, but it could also be extraordinarily fun to watch that disaster unfold. They're number one. Risk Von Drusova, two. Is Marketa Von Drusova a sneaky dark horse? We'll find out. Stevens Potapova, physicality. Fernandez Cornet, fun contrast. Perry Townsend, two shot makers. Sabalenka Martinsova could be sneaky fun. Pavlochenkova Jorzi, a guaranteed disaster. Lou Brangle, Martic Golubic, Kirstea versus Putenseva. Those are my 10 favorite matches on the women's side. On the men's side, slightly better slate. I don't love day two. I actually think for now, the the top half of the draw has been more entertaining, at least on paper. But Rublev's team is delightful on the men's side. Team looked better in week two than week one. I don't think Rublev played that bad in his first two losses of the season. Rublev's the favorite for a reason. I'd lean him. I just wonder how long Andy Murray's going to be able to hang with the pace of Matteo Berrettini, but that's a really fun first-round match. Kokonakis in front of an Australian crowd is always top 10. He takes on Fabio Fonini. That could be fun. Dimitrov Karatsev, Wolf Thompson, Davidovich Vokina, Bublik, Paul Struff, Kesmanovic Jari, Gasquet Umber. 
And then for the college diehards, Vukic versus Holt, because how can I not watch two All-Americans do battle? With that said, that's your look at day number two. Of course, for more expansive thoughts, head on over to our GSP Ace of the Day segment, which you can find every evening over on the Great Shot podcast feed or on the newly renovated website, CrackedRackets.com. Of course, we will have recaps of each and every day of this first slam, hopefully earlier in the day moving forward. That's my apology again to all of you listeners for the late release. But of course, a shout out as always to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, who is back and who, as always, has a f- of an editing job to do day in, day out, making all of our content possible. Also, of course, got to give a shout out to our dear friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of your tennis equipment needs. With that said, for the outstanding super producer, Daniel Westoff, our dear friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll talk to you all after day two. Thanks, everyone.